0: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this
1: is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello, and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from The Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and elsewhere, and be kind enough, also please, to leave us a favorable review. Now, at The Journal's editorial page, we believe strongly in free expression, and so on this podcast, we explore in-depth and candor, Issues of topical interest. We speak to people who are leading figures in their field, practitioners, experts, commentators, try to give us a better understanding of the big issues of the times. My guest this week, I'm pleased to say, is Carter Sneed, Professor of Law and Political Science and Director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Sneed is a leading authority in the world on bioethics. He's the author of What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, uh, which was named by none other than the Wall Street Journal as one of the 10 best books of 2020. He's also written at great length on issues relating to bioethics on abortion, human embryo research, assisted reproduction, and end of life issues. In addition to his scholarship and teaching, the professor has provided advice on legal and public policy issues to officials in all branches of the US government. And most recently, he filed an amicus brief, friend of the court brief, in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health case. was decided by the Supreme Court last week, as we now all know. And needless to say, Professor Sneed's side won the argument. Professor Sneed, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start, if we may, with the Dobbs case, and we can talk a bit about the brief that you filed. But I want to start, if I may, we've seen... I think it's fair to say, perhaps not unexpectedly, a pretty alarmed reaction from many, many people in the United States, in the media, in academia, in politics and elsewhere, suggesting that the Dobbs ruling, the opinion 5-4 ruling and the opinion authored by Justice Alito, as a rolling back of women's rights is going to lead to terrible suffering for women, is an extraordinary infringement by federal judiciary, by the rights of women to make decisions over their own bodies. And we look like we're into the early stages of an all-out culture war that might make the culture war that we've seen in the last 10 years or so look like a minor skirmish. As those, again, who argued very persuasively and passionately on the side that actually in the end was successful, what would you say to those who do have legitimate concerns here that this represents a kind of cultural revolution that could have extraordinary repercussions for women society. How do you respond to those concerns? First of all, I would try to respond with
0: empathy. I mean, I understand there's a great deal of anxiety and anger and frustration. I will say the media, I'm not certainly talking about the Wall Street Journal, but the media generally has done, I think, a disservice to the American public and their understanding of what exactly Roe v. Wade Did and what Planned Parenthood versus Casey did, and what the other precedents that comprise American abortion jurisprudence did. Social science evidence suggests that up to 65 to 67 percent of people in the United States believe. That if Roe v. Wade was overturned, it would immediately result in the nationwide criminalization of abortion. And you can understand why people would think that, because that's in some ways how it's been described by those who are in positions of influence. I'm sure, doubtless, because of confusion on their part, there may be people who are intentionally trying to mislead others. I wouldn't want to say that, but it's certainly possible. And that number, by the way, that 65 to 67% number also generally tracks the percentage of people who had said in surveys that they wanted Roe v. Wade to remain the law of the land. They wanted Roe not to be overturned. Now, in many cases, the very same surveys ask people what they think the law and policy of abortion should be in America. And almost without exception, the very same people advocate for positions that Roe v. Wade forbids. They say things like, well, we want abortion permitted in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy or the first 15 weeks of pregnancy, but significantly restricted thereafter. Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, taken together, created a regime of abortion on request up to 24 weeks of pregnancy, which is a very unpopular view, according to American surveys. It's it's an unpopular view if you look around the world. The vast majority of countries around the world, including in progressive countries in Western Europe, usually presumptively ban abortion at around 12 weeks or earlier, with some exceptions, of course. And there's dispute about how broad or limited those exceptions are. But on the face of these statutes, which, by the way, are statutes. They're not judicial opinions, which is another another important feature. What the court did effectively in Roe and Casey was to impose on the country a very extreme regime of abortion on request. And even after viability, the court required there to be a health exception that was taken to be very broad to encompass any aspect of a woman's well-being far beyond serious interests in physical or even emotional health associated with the pregnancy, extended beyond to things like economic health and familial health, And so effectively, the American regime on abortion from Roe and Casey was among the most extreme in the world. This came out in oral argument a couple of years ago. There were only seven. I think now there are only 12 countries in the world that permit abortion as late into pregnancy as Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey did. And what the court in this case did, in the Dobbs case, was not flip it around and say abortion is banned now across the country. They said, no, we don't believe that there's a fundamental right to abortion, and therefore it it is for the state's or the other political branches, and perhaps at the federal government, but more likely at the state level, to resolve through the democratic process what the laws and policies on abortion should be. And once again, that's how the matter has been resolved around the world in very progressive countries in France and in Norway and in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. People are permitted to govern themselves on this question. So I can certainly understand why people are anxious and upset and troubled by the recent result in Dobbs, because many of those people thought and think that that means abortion is going to be automatically criminalized everywhere in the country without any way to change it. That's not accurate. Now, certainly there are states that will severely restrict abortion. There are other states like New York and Illinois and California, which will go beyond Roe v. Wade and Casey and not merely permit abortion at all stages, but even provide complete funding for it and to sweep away any restrictions on it, including parental notification or waiting periods or informed consent. So the court has returned us to the status quo ante, which the day before Roe was decided in 1973, when abortion was significantly restricted in America and 30 states. And now the question is, what are we going to do to govern ourselves in this space? How are we going to rejoin the community of nations around the world that have been doing this without interference from their courts? What will abortion policy look like? And it's going to look messy. It's going to be a patchwork like any federalist system might.
1: Nonetheless, it is the case that, as you say, a number of states have trigger laws which come into effect in the event of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and other states will move presumably to pass laws. So in a very short passage of time, significant numbers of women in the country are going to find themselves living in states where abortion is, for all practical purposes, outlawed, exceptions for the health of the mother or rape and incest and that kind of stuff. But a large number of people this time last week have been able to go along and get an abortion find themselves in a position where they won't be able to. But does that sort of pretty dramatic change in the legal circumstances over a procedure that has been established, rightly or wrongly, for 50 years as a right. Is that something that concerns you, that this immediate effect on a significant number of women, that there is a very significant change for a lot of people?
0: Yes, of course. Here's how I would think of it, right? So the question of abortion in America is, I think, the most complex and difficult question we have on the public square. It's a question of balancing incommensurable goods. The good of reproductive freedom for women is a good. The burdens of unplanned pregnancy and unplanned parenthood are very significant and very serious. And we should be very clear-eyed about that. And people like myself, who argued for the court to return this question to the political branches, need to be very honest about that. On the other side of the balance, though, and this is, again, I think something that's lost in the debate, because people immediately focus on the question of the restraints on women's freedom, the consequences for women's freedom of this, which are serious and need to be addressed. Without discussing the question on the other side of the ledger, namely, the good of protecting nascent human life in the womb from conception through birth throughout an individual's life. We have 63 million abortions in America since 1973. Now, that's not only because of Roe v. Wade, but Roe v. Wade ensured that result because it made it impossible for states to prohibit abortion. And it seems to me that if we're going to have an honest conversation about this, The other way to describe what is happening now is that there are hundreds of thousands, maybe, of unborn children who are now going to be protected from lethal private violence. And if we're going to have an honest conversation about abortion, we need to include both sides of the balance of the ledger to discuss how do we reconcile, if at all, these competing goods. And people like myself who believe in the intrinsic equality of every human being, born and unborn, we now have an opportunity and an obligation to come to the aid of those women who feel distressed, who are facing An uncertain future, who are concerned about the possibility that they can't follow one pathway that they may have followed in response to their sometimes tragic circumstances, and come to the aid of those women and try to give them as much support as we possibly can. The disagreement is not whether or not those women should be supported. The disagreement is what tools are available to do that. And the people in those states who will vote to put in place those restrictive laws take the view that one option for dealing with that tragic situation cannot include the intentional killing of an innocent human life. In utero, it has to include other measures, social safety net measures, surrounding those women with the support and care they need, whether that be through direct government intervention or partnering with nonprofits, crisis pregnancy centers, maternity group homes and such like. And I can tell you that the culture of life movement, which, by the way, is in America run by women. I mean, if you look at every single nonprofit, if you look at the Susan B. Anthony list, if you look at the March for Life, if you look at the Americans United for Life, if you look at it, all these organizations are run by women. And it's not merely advocacy for restricting abortion. It includes also advocacy for caring for women, for providing them with the material needs and the emotional needs that are required for their flourishing. Hoping and expecting that this moment is going to not just be an opportunity for states to restrict abortion, but also to come to the aid of women. Frankly, There is actually some promising evidence of that. Even if you look in a state like Texas, which is very... Conservative, they have a robust alternatives to abortion program. They put hundred million dollars into it in 2021. They provided a million services for 100,000 people in fiscal year 2020. Now, that's I don't want to be naive and suggest that you know staunch Republicans who are very skeptical of government involvement are going to change their tune overnight. But pro-life voters who have cast their votes for these politicians now, it seems to me, have a new kind of leverage to find a more moderate sort of politics that takes into account the needs of women, which is a focus of concern for the culture of life movement.
1: It's not simply single-mindedly focused on unborn human beings. If abortion is, as you say, the intentional taking of a human life, why is it acceptable for us to say, well, okay, this is a matter for states to decide and for the politicians to decide, ultimately for the electors to decide, if it is the taking of human life? And we don't, after all, let states decide whether or not infanticide is, you know, they can choose whether they have laws allowing infanticide up to a year or three years or five years or whatever. We say... Infanticide is infanticide under the common law and all of the laws that the US and the states have. It's illegal. Why shouldn't we be pressing for abortion actually to be treated as the other intention of taking lives are, which is either murder or manslaughter? So there are two questions embedded in your
0: interesting question. First of which is why don't we simply declare abortion to be murder as a nationwide proposition and have a uniform policy on that question? That's a constitutional question, right? The court in Roe declared that the word person in the Constitution for the 14th Amendment equal protection clause and due process clause, which require the laws to be applied equally and fairly to all persons who are similarly situated. In Roe, the court declared that the unborn child is not a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. In Dobbs, the court didn't find to the contrary. They took a kind of neutral view on that question, and it was clear at oral argument, there's not a single justice in the majority that expressed the view in this opinion that that's the case. There were an amicus briefs filed. Robert George and John Finnis, my former colleague from Notre Dame, takes the view that as in a matter of original understanding, the word person in the Constitution does include unborn children. And if the court were to be persuaded of that proposition, then they would have the result that you described. But the court has not taken that view. I think that The question for originalists, at least on the court, I think the historic question to them is ambiguous. For other justices who are not originalists, I think they would be inclined not to make that conclusion. And so for better or worse, the court has left the question of the morals and legal status of the unborn up to the states themselves. And is that a controversial proposition? Sure it is. But the question zooming out for a moment was, whether or not the Supreme Court can declare one theory of life, as it did in Roe and Casey, and declared the unborn child to be functionally subpersonal, not a person, because they declared the unborn child's interest to be categorically inferior to the interests of the woman whose future was threatened by the unplanned pregnancy. And they forbade states from adopting any theory of life that would give priority to the unborn child in certain sorts of contexts, not involving the life of the mother or serious bodily injury, but you know, other kinds of interests that would allow the, the interest in unborn life to override those maternal interests. So that's the position that the court has taken. And to answer the question as to whether or not the Constitution recognizes the unborn child as a person, as I say, is a complicated question that is unresolved, about which even conservatives disagree. The sea change, in this opinion, is allowing states to adopt, as a legal matter, a particular theory of life that allows them to extend maximal protection, including the protection of the homicide laws. To the unborn child. And in fact, outside of the abortion context, federal law includes. The protections of homicide laws to unborn children. There's a law in America called Lacey and Connors Law, or the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which treats the murder of a child in utero by a third party outside of the context of abortion as a homicide. There are state laws where you can get the death penalty for killing an unborn child outside of the context of abortion. So the question of the moral status of the unborn child is a very, very vexed matter. But even in the absence of the court concluding that the child is in the womb is a constitutional person they nevertheless allow states to to choose what they believe how that child should be treated so you don't need to be a constitutional person to be protected by the laws or even by the homicide laws the states can make that judgment in the state of New York and Illinois they've declared by statute that the unborn child at the embryonic or fetal stages of development is to be deemed a non-person without any personal interest they say that explicitly in the law other states like in Louisiana uh, they already declare the the embryonic human being to be a juridical person, even though they had to carve out an exception for abortion by operation of Roe and Casey before they were overturned.
1: We've got to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Professor Carter Sneed the University of Notre Dame talking about the Dobbs decision to overturn Roe v. Wade.
0: Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code podcast. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Professor Carter Sneed of the University of Notre Dame. We're now going to have a patchwork of abortion frameworks, um, 51 or more, I guess. Do you think there will be, and again, that under the, the federal system, of the United States has that the clear implication of um, the Dobbs decision. We make an attempt to, I mean, to pass a federal law through the Congress that would regulate abortion in some way. From your reading of Dobbs... I mean, let's say the Democrats were to win majorities in both houses of Congress in the midterm elections and then do away with the filibuster in the Senate, presumably pass legislation that guaranteed a right to abortion along the lines of Casey or something like that. What's your sense from reading? Do you think that would pass constitutional muster?
0: I don't think there's anything in Dobbs that would preclude that. There's a separate question, which is not taken up in Dobbs, because any federal action has to be undertaken pursuant to an enumerated power in the Constitution itself. The federal government in the United States is a government, in principle at least, of limited powers, whereas the states have plenary authority to regulate without any limits so long as they respect the restrictions of the U.S. Constitution. So the interesting question that would come up is whether or not The most likely candidate for a source of authority in the Constitution to authorize Congress to do that would be the Commerce Clause. And they would say, because abortion affects interstate commerce in some important way, that gives us the right to regulate abortion in America. And we're going to override and preempt any state laws that seek to restrict abortion. Now, it's an interesting question to know what this court would do with that kind of an assertion. I will say, in 2007, The Supreme Court affirmed the federal partial birth abortion ban, which is not a ban on abortion at a gestational stage, but it forbids a particular kind of gruesome procedure that is used in performing abortions. And there are other procedures that are sometimes used at the same gestational stage and the same circumstances that are not banned. But the federal partial birth abortion ban act singled out one procedure And banned that procedure. And the court affirmed that as constitutional in a five to four decision. Now, in a concurring opinion, Justice Thomas mentions in that case, a kind of mischievous way, that no one, no party to the case sought to argue about whether or not Congress had the authority to do this in the first instance whether they had the authority to enact such a law under their Commerce Clause authority in the Constitution itself. So it would be very interesting to see what the court thinks about that. I mean, we'd have to look back at the Affordable Care Act case and see what the court said about the Commerce Clause authority to enact the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So if Congress did that, it would be a question about what their underlying authority to regulate at the state level, the practice of medicine, which has traditionally been reserved to the states themselves, what their authority might be.
1: You're a bioethicist, so I want to dig into, a little bit into the questions of the ethics of abortion itself. As you said much earlier on, it's perhaps the most controversial, complex subject that we deal with in public policy here, and indeed in many other parts of the world. Some people think that abortion should be banned completely from the moment of conception that is a human life, it has personhood, it must be protected, and any taking of that life is an offense, even in the cases of rape and incest, and even conceivably in the case of the, the health of the life of the mother. There are others, and again, we may see this in this patchwork that we may now see developing in the US, who say there's a fetus has no rights until delivery. And so conceivably could allow abortion right up until 39 weeks or whatever. You know, there seems to be quite a large number of people who think that first trimester abortions are okay. Uh, I saw some polling on this event. I wrote about this in my column this week. And, but the second trimester support drops as exactly, as you say, dramatically, which is, of course, at odds with the, with the Roe and the Casey framework. People don't hold hard and fast views. And yet, if you are taking a logical position, again, I've always thought, you know, the Catholic position is the most logical position. Life begins at conception. Again, I know even in the Catholic Church, there's been a history of, you know, different views about that, whether implantation and all that. But but if you take the view, the uh, human has a soul and that soul is there from conception, as hard and sort of absolutist as that may seem, that does seem to make logical sense. What's the logical rationale for... 15 weeks or first trimester, you see what I mean? Where do you try to establish a reasoned basis for thinking about the rights of the unborn child?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. As you said a little while ago, and there are people who are atheists who affirm the intrinsic equal dignity of human life from conception all the way through gestation and beyond. So that's not, even though the Catholic Church has been the kind of most prominent expositor of the view that you articulated, it's not a religiously based view necessarily. It's in the same way that the Catholic Church poses uh, poverty and intentional killing in other contexts. Just to put that to the side though. So I think the reason why most people try to draw the lines that you're talking about, viability. But when you tell people viability is 24 weeks, they're like, oh, that's too late. How about 12 weeks? And then if you explain to people like what a baby at 12 weeks looks like and can do, they're like, oh, maybe six weeks. And you say, well, what about a heartbeat? And they're like, oh, I don't know about that. Most normal, healthy people don't want to think about abortion. And they don't spend a lot of time thinking about the nuances of the bioethical questions that you raise. They just understand that, look, you know, women have very tough situations And you don't want to impose a strong view on other people. And maybe here's a good way to split the difference. I think that's honestly how most people operate. I'm not condemning those people, but I'm suggesting that because if you pause and think about that, in some ways it proves too much. You're like, why do you think that human life is valuable at one moment, but then not the next? And so the arguments in favor of abortion tend to break down into two broad categories, one of which is called the personhood argument, which is an argument about moral status and then tries to associate certain kinds of capacities with moral status and saying, well, you're not a person until you can do X, Y, or Z things. You're not a person until you uh, can formulate a, a conceptual thought or a desire and then pursue that desire. There's a very famous philosopher, Michael Tooley, who said, the only bearers of rights are those who can formulate a desire for rights. And if you can't formulate a desire for rights, then you are not a person and therefore you don't have the rights and entitlements of a person and we don't have to treat you like a person. One of the problems for that, if it is a problem for that theory, it's the same problem for Peter Singer is, well, there are newborns who can't formulate future-directed plans and desires. Does that mean that infanticide is okay? And Michael Tooley would say, yes, it is. He would say, yeah, of course. In fact, his famous essay is In Defense of Abortion and Infanticide. That may not be the exact title, but the word infanticide is in there. And he defends infanticide. And Marianne Warren, another famous philosopher of personal says there are five sort of traits that we associate with humanhood, and most of these relate to cognition. Most of these relate to thinking and communicating and formulating future-directed plans. My argument is I don't find those persuasive because I think that, first of all, the enterprise of the strong and able-minded setting forth criteria for the weak and vulnerable that they have to meet in order to uh, qualify for protection of the law strikes me as a problematic enterprise in the first instance. But then secondly, even if you put that to the side, the kind of human beings that are swept into this category of non-personhood goes well beyond the unborn. It includes infants. It includes people with dementia. It includes the disabled. So to me, a theory of personhood that includes those people is one that's gone in in a wrong direction. Now, the other argument that people make for uh, abortion rights is called the bodily dependence arguments. And the idea here is that a woman is uniquely burdened by a pregnancy. Only she is Directly and adversely affected by that. her life, her body, her mind, her future are all encumbered by this invading being, this this being that is is making a claim on her bodily support and women should not be required to give that bodily support to this third party. They should have the ultimate freedom to decline to support the life of the unborn child. And that's sort of called the bodily dependence argument, which is where you end up getting things like viability because people say, oh, at viability, when the child is no longer uniquely dependent on the mother, then we can say states can ban abortion because you can simply remove the child and try to render some kind of health care, emergency care to the child and the woman you've terminated her pregnancy, she's no longer pregnant, but you haven't ended up, you know, taking the life of the child intentionally. This bodily dependence argument is most famously made by Judith Jarvis Thompson, philosopher who uses an analogy of a woman who's abducted by music lovers. While she's unconscious, they attach a violinist to her kidneys. So she's like wakes up in a hospital bed and there's like a violinist who's also unconscious, who's attached to her body. And the doctor shows up and said, we're sorry that you were abducted, but we can't detach this guy from you because it would kill him. And That's not permitted. That's unjust. And so you're going to have to lay there in that bed for nine months while your kidneys clean his blood. And this analogy is supposed to appeal to the intuition that it's an outrageous injustice to impose on one person the obligation to support another person's life with his or her body. Now, what that analogy misses, of course, is, A, it would only apply to the human context of rape, right? Even though the rhetoric, as I'm hearing nowadays for the abortion rights, Community is forced pregnancy. They use that phrase to describe the state of affairs in which the state prohibits abortion. But of course, in the context of human pregnancy, the relationship between the mother and the unborn child is, unless it's a tragic and horrifically criminal circumstances of rape, is not a matter of forced impregnation. And moreover, they're not strangers, right? It's a mother and an unborn child are already. Bound together and connected to one another in a relationship of kinship and of genetics, and of they're co-located and their fates and futures are intertwined in a way, and they stand in a relationship to one another in a very distinctive and kind of sui generis fashion. So, I think any analogies that involve the use of force, like Judith Jarvis Thompson's, don't quite work to make the point that I think she's trying to make. But those are the strongest arguments, the bodily dependence argument, the personhood argument. And you can see those implicit even in an inchoate way in the modern arguments of the abortion rights
1: movement. Where do the issues of rape and incest, how should we view those in terms of this framework of thinking about when a baby, a fetus, a child requires rights? Because again, I think this is a very thorny issue for a lot of people. You know, again, you don't have to be religious to believe it. If you believe very strongly that a fetus acquires all the human rights of a human individual, whether that's a conception or whether it's, uh, as you said, a viability or whether it's somewhere between the two Or whether it's even later in that, then even if that child was the result of a horrible, brutal crime, it's obviously not consistent with the belief that that fetus that has acquired personhood has a right to live to say, okay, well, we'll make an exception because it was the product of a terrible crime. I do think most people feel, even very strongly pro life people, feel something, a recoil at the idea that a woman who has been raped or the victim of, you know, horrible incestuous assault should be required to carry that baby to term and to bring that child to the world. What's the right way to think about what is a, fortunately, a relatively small number of cases, but it is nonetheless very important. If we believe in the rights of the fetus, why do those rights cease to exist simply because of the circumstances in which that fetus was conceived?
0: Yeah, no, it's a very difficult and interesting Question, and you're right. It's a question that divides pro lifers. The reason why people in the pro life movement affirm the equal dignity of the unborn child from the moment of conception is because as a biological matter, and this is important, I think, for listeners to understand, as a biological matter, it's the same organism, except in the case of identical twins in which you have two, two organisms. That's complicated. We talk about that. But it's literally the same individual organism, a separate and distinct organism. It has its own DNA. It moves itself along a trajectory of species-specific development from the moment of conception, throughout all gestational stages, through birth, and then on, of course, into the infant and adolescent and and adult stages of development. It's the same being, and it moves itself in a kind of gapless process of development. And so the pro-life sort of insight is, well, it's a kind of form of unjust and radical discrimination to say, well, yes, you're the same organism throughout all these stages, but at some points in the process, you're entitled to the protection of the law and other points you're not. So I just wanted to, to make that clear before I turn to your question on rape. And it is a very, very fortunate thing that the question of pregnancies by rape and incest is a tragic, horrific criminal injustice, but thank goodness it's a vanishingly small number of cases. But in those cases, for the people who are involved, it's a very serious matter, and we owe them the responsibility of thinking about it carefully and talking about it and being honest about it. So the question here is, when can a mother use, through the agency of an abortion provider, use lethal force against her child in the womb? Under what circumstances is that permissible? And we, in normal life, we do authorize the use of force, including deadly force, against individuals when there are very good reasons to do it. Self-defense is sort of the most obvious example, but there are other examples of well, of defense and necessity and excuse, or other instances in which we excuse the use of deadly force because of the state of mind of the people involved. Just want to be clear that even if one were to embed in the law the proposition that an unborn child is a human person with all the rights and entitlements that he or she has, That doesn't mean that they would be free from the kind of questions about the justified use of force that every person is subject to. It wouldn't simply ban abortion in every single instance. You'd have to say, now we have some complicated questions about how to deal with the competing claims and when we will allow force to be used against this innocent non-aggressor. So the question of abortion is always, how do we understand the competing claims of the mother who has the burdens that we have to acknowledge in all honesty of pregnancy and parenthood, the physical burdens, the emotional burdens, the financial burdens, et cetera, et cetera. That is the one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is the intrinsic value of a member of the human family. How do we think about those two things? Now, those who would argue in favor, and this includes pro-lifers, argue in favor of a rape or incest exception to a general protection of the unborn in the law, they would say it's because the burden on a woman of carrying a child who is the product of rape or, or incest to term is such a crushing burden that we can't ask her to do that. That that burden is so weighty that it overrides the right to life of the human being in the womb. That's the argument that pro-lifers make. Obviously, people who support abortion rights are are persuaded by that argument, as well as even lesser justifications for abortion. But those pro-lifers, that's how they would argue. Now, the counter-argument would be the child in the womb is an innocent human being who is, is not responsible for the rape or the incest. And the rape and the incest injustice, the person who perpetrated that horrific crime should be punished to the full extent of the law. But the damage is done once the baby is conceived because you can't right that wrong by eliminating the life of an innocent. So that would be the argument against the rape exception, the incest exception. Now, as a matter of politics, that debate is in some ways pretty academic because most jurisdictions, including conservative jurisdictions, are going to have rape and incest exceptions to their laws restricting abortion. And I'll say That there are pro-life politicians who don't like those exceptions, but nevertheless would vote for them if it turns out that was the best they could do in terms of providing a law that's sufficiently protective of unborn life. Marco Rubio, for example, in a debate, it must have been in 2016, was asked this question, and he said, as a matter of prudence, he would vote for a law that had a rape and incest exception in it if that were the only way that he could get a pro-life law passed. And in some cases, I think that will end up being the case.
1: Turning again to the question of where we go now in this post-Dobbs world, what is your sense of the way this will go? Again, uh, as we mentioned at the start, there are states that have trigger laws. There are states that, that either have or will plan to impose significant restrictions on abortion. And yet that may not necessarily be, I mean, in a world in which Roe was the uh, operating legal framework, those things were never going to happen. Now that that new legal dispensation will happen... Do you think that might change or do you think we will find ourselves in a situation where 13, 20, 25 states will, in effect, ban abortion with some exceptions of the kinds that we've talked about? Or do you actually think even that will evolve as states now come to terms and voters come to terms with their responsibilities and the implications of them?
0: It's an interesting question because prior to Dobbs, there were no costs at all for politicians to go all in on the most restrictive proposals for abortion, because you knew the Supreme Court would strike it down. Now, on the other hand, there didn't seem to be very much opposition in Illinois and New York to passing laws that not only permitted abortion as a matter of right through viability, but effectively permitted it up until the moment of birth, and then swept away every single restriction, including parental notification laws waiting periods, informed consent periods, even some laws that seem to relate to the requirement to render emergency medical care to babies who survive abortions, which most everybody agrees is something that should be done. There wasn't a lot of pushback from the people in the state of New York or in the state legislature, but that is so extreme. The equivalent failed in Congress to even garner a majority in the Senate. Joe Manchin voted against That bill, Susan Collins, who's pro choice, voted against it because it was so extreme. So it is an interesting moment where now politicians are kind of operating without a net. If you want to advocate for pro life laws, you have the opportunity to pass those. And so it'll be an interesting question to see whether or not they get cold feet or whether they were earnest in the first instance and believing the things they wanted to say. Now, as far as the politics go, I think one of the virtues of federalism is that you're going to see in certain states, like in the people of Mississippi, and I would dare say the women of Mississippi, support the 15-week ban or maybe even a more restrictive ban than the one that was affirmed in Dobbs. In New York, there is no such support. Indiana, uh, you probably have support from some pretty strict pro-life laws, and you'll take more sort of moderate states, and and you could see something, you know, people splitting the difference. You see Virginia, Glenn Youngkin is talking about a 15-week ban. He's not talking about a total ban. So uh, what I suspect is going to happen is people are going to feel they're very, very distressed right now. A lot of people are, but I think they're going to find that self-governance is not as frightening as they think it is. And bad laws, if you consider a law to be bad, are a heck of a lot easier to change than bad Supreme Court decisions. I mean, it takes decades and decades to try to change the court and to try to elect presidents and senators, including presidents that you might be disgusted by, in order to try to produce this sort of result, which again is a modest result. The question is going back to the states. And again, I don't mean to sound unsympathetic to the women in those states where abortion is going to be restricted. And I very firmly believe pro-lifers have a special obligation to come to the aid of those women in every way they possibly can. And actually at Notre Dame, I'm, I'm working on a multidisciplinary initiative through the De Nicola Center called Women and Children First, uh, imagining a post-Roe world, which means to provide support in the way that a university can through research and teaching and public service and engagement to try to care for women in a post-Roe landscape in, in all of their needs, not just until the baby's born, but even beyond that. I think people are going to be less shocked as the time goes on. I believe that even those people who will remain angry at the Supreme Court will find themselves probably living in a lot of jurisdictions where abortion is free and accessible. And as a political matter, it's not clear to me that this is going to make a big difference in the upcoming elections or even going forward, because there's only so long you can sustain anger at Mississippi when you live in Illinois or Michigan or New York or something like that. I mean, there are certainly some cases where it might make a difference in the upcoming election, but I think people have other things on their mind beyond the question of abortion, especially if they live in a jurisdiction where the laws are to their liking.
1: One of the many criticisms of Roe v. Wade, aside from obviously the specific question of whether it was bad law in the sense of it, um, you know, discovered a constitutional right that a lot of scholars, and certainly the current court, clearly thinks didn't exist. One of the criticisms of Roe was that by taking abortion out of the political realm and making it a matter of established law law determined from the bench it sort of froze the deba- it, it intensified the mutual hostility of the partisanship it created an understandable sense of frustration on the part of those who opposed abortion or wanted to regulate abortion in ways that Roe wouldn't allow it made it impossible for them to do so and in the process made the intensity of the debate that much worse maybe heightened the partisanship maybe you know contributed significantly to the sort of overall intensification of the what we call the culture wars if that's true I'm wondering are you optimistic that now having corrected the wrong of Roe restoring the decisions on abortion to the realm of politics and legislation and elected officials will actually make the subject a less, incendiary one in American political debate.
0: I am optimistic about that. I I do think that's true. I mean, it's it's worth reminding ourselves, as you just did, what Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey did. Up until the moment before the courts announced its decision in 1973, in the United States, uh, people not only governed themselves on the question of abortion, but abortion was legally disfavored. It was heavily restricted in 30 states. There were some states that were liberalizing their laws. Other states were, were not. There's an interesting history of that in the later latter part of the 20th century. I don't think that there's a, a respectable theory of constitutional interpretation that gives you Roe v. Wade. Of course, abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution. Privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution. But even for those rights that are implicit in the Constitution, those rights that have been discovered, at least those rights are deeply embedded in the history and tradition of the country or at least adjacent to rights that are deeply embedded in the history and tradition of the Constitution. Abortion was never, ever a part of the fabric of American law or Constitution in the way that Roe made it. And as you say, in one moment swept away everybody's freedom to debate with their neighbor what the laws and policies of abortion should be and imposed a very extreme one-sided solution on every state in America. And then for decades, for 49 years and five months, the court would constantly shift and change its reasoning, its source of authority. It started with a right to privacy, then changed in 1992 to liberty, and it started with the trimester framework in Roe, and then they changed that in Casey, and then it changed again in 2016 in the Hellerstedt case. So it's constantly been a shifting and tortured narrative of trying to figure out a persuasive rationale for this very extreme conclusion was favored by a majority of the court and by a lot of public opinion. And so not only did Roe take this question out of the political sphere and impose one solution on it, it did it in a way that was so unpersuasive as even to liberals like Lawrence Tribe and John Hart Ely and even the late Justice Ginsburg said, wow, that's really a badly reasoned opinion. There's not really a lot of support for it. So not only were people imposed upon in this way, They were imposed upon pursuant to an opinion that was obviously made up. And so that's why it seemed clear to me, even for decades, that Roe was ultimately going to be overturned, because you can't sustain that kind of weak reasoning for such an extreme result for a country that's as pluralistic and big as ours. So, of course, there's going to be a lot of anger and anxiety, but people need to figure out what exactly this new normal looks like. And that's going to take a little bit of time. And yes, it will be messy because politics is always messy. And we haven't had really the opportunity to govern ourselves in this space for almost 50 years. And as you say, by taking the question out of the political sphere, it not just polarized the debate and supercharged it, it kind of privileged the most extreme Voices in the conversation. And there's going to be a lot of pent up enthusiasm among legislators to do certain things, to overstep in terms of restrictions or perhaps in terms of permissive approach. And we'll probably see them reined back in by their electorate. I think that's an awful lot healthier. Than having one extreme solution being imposed on the country under the pretext of a very unpersuasive interpretation of the 14th Amendment.
1: Those in the pro-life movement obviously are celebrating and on the whole very pleased with the Dobbs decision and many of them have said in the last few days that it's an important step on the road to eventually minimum significantly reducing the number of abortions that tens of millions of babies who've been aborted over the last 50 years, but perhaps even on the road towards the elimination of abortion. And and some people say, you know, we'll look back in 100 years at abortion in the way that we look back on slavery today and just realize that it was a moral monstrosity and, you know, wonder how we didn't sort of come to end it sooner. Is that your view? Do you think that this is going to move the nation as a whole towards a world in which there are far significantly fewer abortions and perhaps ultimately get abortions down to such a small number that they become insignificant? I mean, it's hard to speculate, of course.
0: Here's what I'll tell you what I hope happens. What I hope happens is that through the deliberative process of the political branches, People will come to and I know thinking about abortion and talking about abortion is obviously unpleasant and people don't like doing it, which is why most people have only impressionistic understandings of what the law of abortion is and have kind of intuitive solutions that they support in public interest surveys. But I think we're going to have to have this conversation about abortion, and I think part of that is going to educate people about what abortion is, what its causes are. But even more specifically, what and who the unborn child is and what and who these mothers in crisis are. And I hope that it moves us to a more compassionate posture. And I think when a person, and for my part, this is sort of I mean, when I studied the question, I didn't have a preconceived idea about what abortion policy should be like when I started studying these questions and, you know, college and law school. And it, it was really the understanding of human biological development and the philosophical weaknesses of all the arguments. Of personhood and bodily dependence that I talked about before that led me to the conclusion that there has to be a solution to caring for these women that doesn't involve the intentional killing of the human life growing inside them. And maybe I'm naive, but I hope being forced to talk to each other rather than merely submit to the fiat of unelected judges will help people to sort of think through what abortion is and what we can do and what we should do about it. And I hope that that will illuminate Uh, our understanding in a way that leads us to conclude to have more respect for the life of the unborn child, but also more respect and concern for the lives and futures of women who find themselves in very difficult
1: circumstances. Professor Carter Sneed, University of Notre Dame, thank you very much indeed. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Opinion Pages of the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week for another exploration of the big issues driving our world. Thank you and goodbye.